3: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, and this week we'll be bringing you a special podcast at Hay Festival with contributions from Stephen Pinker, Elif Shafak and the fresh voices from the Roundhouse Poets Collective. First though, I'm joined in the studio by Prospect's Arts and Books editor, Samir Rahim and our head of digital, Stephanie Boland, to talk, fresh from Hay, about the new popularity of literary festivals.
4: Samir, Yes, they're um I'm a veteran of them now. Hay's the biggest one I'd say in Britain, but I was reading a statistic there was something like three hundred and sixty in Britain, almost one for every day of the year. And what it's done is it's it's they're fantastic in many ways. They're an opportunity for readers to get excited about books. Hay, in particular, is this amazing place where you know you go. the only place to really buy can buy the new books are, are is in a bookshop, um, full price. Uh, and no amazon so it's like a sort of author's fantasy really but what it's done is it's also changed the way the authors interact with their readers it's no longer enough to turn up do a sort of little reading and um, have a glass of wine and go home you really have to become a performer you have to bring your subject alive and that's whether you're doing fiction or non-fiction
5: is this the point where we reveal to our listeners how you know so much about this?
4: Oh well, yeah, I've been sharing for many things for many years, and um, and I have my own book out. So I've had to think about how I can present this. First novels and sharing first novels events are incredibly difficult, mainly because the author has been so um, tied up with this thing, living it, living with it for for ages, and coming to expose it to an audience where people ask all sorts of vulgar questions, like, is it true? Um, did you enjoy writing this, or um you know sometimes they ask, or oh, has your family been upset by anything you say you said and it and all the rest of it, and you have to be able to prepare witty but not especially revealing answers for all those things um i think I think it was it was fine, but I think in a way. If I'm doing, I'm doing a couple of other things quite soon, and I might do something a little bit more prepared, more presentational. Not quite a PowerPoint, (laughs) but you know, there's got to be substance to it. You can't just bang on about, you know, I I I wrote this in my spare time. Isn't that interesting?
3: So what what would you do? I mean, you 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 say a reading isn't enough. You've got a novel coming out, but is there a beyond
4: the novel, beyond the text? What is outside the text? Big question, Tom. Um, So, well, I know, essentially you've got to strip away all the uh, ambiguity and all the sort of texture and all the sort of literary aspect of it that you actually, is the point of the book, and in a way boil it down to some sort of explicable themes. So I was interviewing Amitav Ghosh the other day, um, who's a wonderful writer, and he's written a new book, which is essentially all about the effects of climate change. And it's a novel. Um, We talked a little bit about literature and climate change, but mainly we talked about the issue surrounding it. So um, in a way, he's become a sort of semi-campaigner for the issue. And so that kind of discussion is is a lot easier uh, to get a handle on. Another tactic, if you don't really want to do that, is um, just particularly for an established older writer, to spin out a slightly controversial comment comment that gets everyone on Twitter in a bit of a tiz. Um, so Ian McEwan recently said, you know, science fiction is is no good and it's just a load of rubbish. So he knows that offending a whole constituency of people um, is going to get uh, get him a lot of attention.
5: I suppose in a in a way you've let yourself down by not doing a non-fiction book because the events I chaired at Hay non-fiction subjects and there was a PowerPoint which went quite well, but it's um it's definitely interesting, the variety between literary festivals as well. I think Hay is its own particular beast, but I've been at the Edinburgh Book Festival, which is quite similar in a lot of ways, and then Stoke Newton Literary Festival and various things around translation, Africa Writes at the British Library that have a very different tone. So there's sort of a different festival for whatever your interest is.
3: The other thing I think is quite sweet about them sometimes is you get these very big figures like who will do anything to sell four extra copies of their book. It's not a financial thing on the part of the author if you're already a kind of David Attenborough or whatever or a Jeremy Vine. But if you've got a new book, you might well go and speak to a half-empty hall at Appledore Book Festival, one in the edge of Devon that I once went to. And um, it, it's just a, quite an amazing and, in a way, quite... a democratizing thing that authors will do this
4: yeah and i think it also ties into you know is it like bands now do they have to just go out on the road um and make money by performing um you know in that case they should just do what stand-up comedians do and say okay 60 percent of the door and i don't really care about how many books i sell i mean adam Kay, the doctor turned uh, non-fiction writer, uh, is this going to hurt? He had a really interesting article the other day saying he just employs a management company to send him round to theatres and he does effectively a stand-up show about the book and he makes a lot of money out of that and in fact probably more than, than he would by selling books afterwards.
5: But there is a question about cost, isn't there? Because wonderful as these festivals can be and it is particularly nice to be in a space where the sort of anti-intellectualism you see in so much British public life isn't really on show. There can be quite a high cost in attendance or particularly a certain type of audience who tends to go along. And Samir, I think you were saying in in India often they're free to attend, so it's more like museums
4: in the UK. Yeah, the Jaipur Literary Festival um, is free. Um, It's heavily sponsored and and it's very popular. And, you know, it, it is an amazing thing to go there and see thousands tens of thousands of people coming along want to sort of passionately engage and discuss ideas and bouncing off books there's always that celebrity element and getting a sort of famous author or famous personality who's written a book is part of the um ecosystem of the festival but i think generally think they're quite amazing and uh, also uh, sometimes when you turn up You'll find, you know, I did an event at Hey, uh, chairing an event of Kath- with Catherine Hanley, who's written a biography of Matilda, of Stephen and Matilda, uh, m- medieval uh, queen of fame, and there was a thousand people there. Mm. I mean, it's amazing. People will just turn up to an event with an author who's not necessarily that well known, writing an academic book, and there's a real yearning there, and what, what that might say, as as, you, as 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 you say, Stephanie. Um, Uh, maybe that says something to our TV commissioners and our radio commissioners and our magazine commissioners about the desire that there is for people to talk about um, intellectual subjects.
5: See, I think of it as what you were talking about Amazon before and how it's crowded out a market of booksellers, but it does almost restore the function of a bookshop or a second-hand bookshop in a sense in that you have an array of things to choose from. And you might, if you have an empty slot in your afternoon take a punt on something you don't already know about the way we shop for books and engage in films and tv and music now is so customizable Um they they bring us back that sense of coming across things we didn't know
3: before is there a danger though just to be the grump in the room for a second that the um, emphasis on performance and all of that like means that we end up only with a certain type of author i heard a report i wasn't there myself about the um event with the booker prize winner um anna burns talking uh, talking about her book milkman who i think is a, a sort of working class woman from belfast who wouldn't assume to have the dinner party views you might hear banded about in the green room at hay uh, as you watch um you know confident figures waltzing around um now she's probably having won the booker prize famous enough to get the gig anyway but is there a danger of a kind of narrowing thing going on here? Yes, I think
4: fiction particularly will get crowded out, uh, and, and it really and is being. And I think with someone like well, like Anna Burns, who um, a year ago was a writer who, you know, she got published because uh, an editor took a punt on her and that book was turned down many, many times. She's become incredibly successful now, and I think it would be fair enough for her to say... Um, you know, judge my book on its merits and um, I don't really have to have an opinion on, you know, Brexit or the Northern Ireland border or, or anything else.
5: Yeah, I mean, putting aside the, the class point, there is something about introversion and the the career of an author being one where you don't have to perform upset mediated through the page. I know um, Sarah Moss, for instance, is constantly being nagged by her publishers to set up a Twitter account and refuses to do it and goes, I will sell fewer books, but I don't want to be on there. And you do have to sort of set a boundary at some point, don't you?
4: Absolutely. I, I definitely respect that. Also, there's an element of mystique, which is healthy. And, you know, even, you know, the, the person who doesn't give you all their opinions within the first two weeks on Twitter um,
3: can also be quite an attractive proposition. OK, thanks both for that. Now let's zip back to Wales itself, where Stephanie was talking to some of this year's star guests.
5: Okay, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Just to kick us off, what is it that you are reading at the moment? We're here at Hay, the Festival of Books, so what's on your bedside table?
7: I'm reading uh, Empty Planet by Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson uh, about the coming population crash. Uh, Population crash? Everyone is worried about the population explosion, but uh, women are having fewer babies worldwide. In uh, developed countries, they're uh, not having enough babies to replenish the population. Even in the uh, developing world, the uh, birth rate is coming down as people move to cities, as people get greater education, as women become more empowered. What will it mean for the world when the population begins to contract, as it has already started to do in wealthy countries?
5: Do you know yet what conclusion they come to about what it will do for for the world?
7: (laughs) They said the uh, the changes will be wrenching. We're getting the first taste of it in countries like Japan and Italy where there aren't enough young people to support the aging population who are beneficiaries of a social welfare system. What do you do when you have uh, four or five retirees for every working person? They suggest that there will necessarily be more um, welcoming of immigrants because wealthy countries that fail to replenish themselves with uh, immigration will have a, a top-heavy population uh, with uh, no one around to do the work. Uh, and there are probably many changes that we can't anticipate. The world has never uh, gone through a, a population contraction in modern times.
5: I suppose that feeds in quite nicely to what you're here to talk about at Hay. You're giving the Raymond William Lecture. Uh, tell us a little about what you've decided to focus on tonight.
7: I'll be speaking about my book, Enlightenment Now, the subtitle of which is The Case for Reason, Science humanism and progress. And progress, like uh, the the population contraction, is uh, a word that raises eyebrows because people have become skeptical of the very idea of progress. The uh, heart of the book is a um, series of 75 graphs showing that progress is... uh, uh, a real phenomenon. It's not a matter of optimism or seeing the glasses half full or wearing rose-colored glasses. It's a matter of being aware of trends that most people are unaware of, that uh, longevity is increasing, uh, violent crime is decreasing, deaths in war have been uh, decreasing, leisure time is increasing, uh, education is increasing, not just in rich countries, but worldwide. Uh, it's uh, People are often stunned to uh, come across these trends because the picture of the world that you get from journalism is very different. Journalism covers um, events, things that happen, not things that don't happen. So wars get covered, but peace does not. And it covers things that happen suddenly, like a a terrorist attack or uh, an accident, but doesn't cover things that happen gradually, like a decrease in the accident rate by a few percentage points every year. Uh, So it's a a counterintuitive claim, uh, a factual claim, not a claim about uh, how we ought to see the world, but just facts that most people are not aware of. And then I try to uh, identify the causes of progress, because uh, another fallacy in people's conception of progress, in addition to not knowing that it is a fact, is to think that if it happens, there must be some... Uh, naturally unfolding process that just lifts us ever upward. And hence if people are skeptical of such a process as they ought to be, they're skeptical of or unaware of the facts of progress. Uh, I don't think there is any natural force that makes progress happen. It's a result of human agency, of human knowledge, uh, and of um, commitment to humanism, namely the prioritization of human well-being as the ultimate moral good, as opposed to carrying out religious commandments, as opposed to glorifying the nation or the class or the race or the faith. Uh, Humanism is, uh, as a coherent moral philosophy, is uh, uh, one of the gifts of the Enlightenment. Uh, The scientific revolution and uh, other Enlightenment-era developments collectively have uh, propelled the progress that we have enjoyed over the last few centuries.
5: I suppose thinking of that last few centuries, it's it's not just journalists like myself being far too easily taken in by whatever's new and new and upsetting. It's also a question of historical scale, isn't it? Because if you look back a few centuries ago, then progress is perhaps clearer than if you're just focusing on what's happened in the past five years, say.
7: Although it it doesn't have to be centuries. If you focus on what's happening in the last 20 or 30 years, there is fantastic progress that people are unaware of, especially uh, outside the West, where uh, rates of extreme poverty have plummeted, where entire regions of the world that were consumed by war are are now at peace, such as uh, uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia. Uh, Even the number of wars in in, uh, Africa have uh, gone down, in uh, Latin America. the uh, rates of um, literacy have gone down worldwide. Uh, and uh, again, I'm not talking about over a span of centuries. I'm talking about over a span of, uh, of decades.
5: Well, sorry to take you from an optimistic to a pessimistic note, but taking that idea of progress not being inevitable, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing us right now that we need to be getting to grips with as a society?
7: Uh, I, I would say it's uh, putting together a coherent um, moral and political narrative to push back against the counter-enlightenment, illiberal forces that have uh, uh, have uh, swelled in recent years. The forces of authoritarianism, of nationalism, of racism, of fascism, of reactionary thinking, uh, which uh, I had, uh, kind of thought that they were in retreat, but they've they've clearly they're pushing back. They're they're uh, not a majority in most countries, but they're they're uh, they're doing damage. Uh, One of the reasons is that uh, I don't think we've formulated a coherent vision of how uh, we can make things better uh, other than these destructive and backward-looking movements.
5: Stephen Pinker, thank you very much.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us. Thank you.
5: If we could start, tell us what you're reading at the moment.
1: You know, I usually like to read a book of fiction and a book of non-fiction at the same time, Um, and so I was judging the Wellcome Book Prize this year, and the book that I want to talk about with you is Murmur by Will Eaves, who is our winner. I admired the novel. And it's not, not only the story and the style, but the craft, you know, the this very quiet power that this book has. It, it just left a big impact on me. But when it comes to nonfiction these days, I'm reading books on usually politics, populism, nationalism, what's happening in the world. And I'm I'm curious about what is going on. So I, I try to follow the literature closely. So the title of your talk was How to Remain Sane.
5: Big topic at the moment. Yeah. Tell us a little about why you selected that.
1: Yeah the title of my talk was How to Remain Sane in the Age of Political Uncertainties, Pessimism and Populism and I think so many of us rightly we are worried about what's going on in the world and we do know that history does not always go forward. Sometimes it goes backwards and countries can Slide into tribalism, ultranationalism, religious fundamentalism, or some form of toxic politics or toxic populism. so we can't take it for granted. we can't say, well, we are a democracy, it will never happen here um, and and so my talk was I think about a challenge that we're all facing. on the one hand, I don't think it's a good thing not to be interested in the world to say, No, this is too much. I just want to go to my own quiet life and keep everything outside because it won't go away. We have to become engaged citizens and I think the change will come from us citizens. It's not going to come from politicians, it's not going to come from the elite, it's going to come from us um, world citizens on the other hand when you are engaged in the society in the world it's also quite depressing because you follow it closely and then it's just too much to deal with so therefore the question that i dealt with in my talk was how to remain committed engaged but at the same time try not to lose our you know sanity and try not to lose our to to be depressed to be more balanced and I think we need a healthy dose of pessimism and optimism in this age. To have extreme optimism brings along a kind of confidence, comfort, uh, taking things for granted. That might not be the best way, but to ha- to be too pessimistic also pulls us down. I think we need a healthy dose, a mixture of, of both.
5: And I suppose a sense of our, our own agency, and like you say, to be engaged citizens is so yeah. important.
1: That is true and, uh, and actually when we read the people, um, thinkers, poets, writers, intellectuals who have survived the darkest chapters in human history including the Holocaust almost all of them are saying something very similar. They're saying the opposite of goodness is not badness. The opposite of kindness is not necessarily unkindness. They're saying in fact the opposite of goodness is numbness. The moment we become numb <clears throat> the moment we become indifferent, desensitized, the moment we stop caring about what's going on, the moment we stop caring about the pains and sorrows of another human being, that is a very dangerous threshold. Um, so I think art and literature has to challenge that w- all those walls of numbness that are being erected around us
5: of course a theme that comes out again and again in so many different facets of your work is this idea of transcending boundaries whether it's boundaries of nationality or of faith or or of genre I suppose even.
1: Yeah yeah that is very true and I think it is in literature that I feel more free um, that I can be more multiple. We all have lots of different voices inside us multiple belongings but the system we're living in always asks us to belong in one tribe, to have just one single identity and and remain there once and for all. And I want to challenge that. I'm not happy with that kind of identity politics. I do not find it progressive. And I want to emphasize this manifesto for multiplicity. As human beings, just like Walt Whitman said, said once upon a time, we all contain multitudes. Now, there is a political connotation here because all populist movements are essentially not only anti-liberal but they're also anti-pluralistic. They want to simplify things you know they don't like complexity they don't like pluralism they just want very simple dualities us versus them and I think for a writer there is no us versus them. For a writer there's no other in fact the other is my brother the other is my sister and I am the other. Would you say this is the biggest challenge
5: we're taking on, this populist movement that seeks to divide across the Global North dividers into, you know, the real people and the other people?
1: Well, that all those divisions um, are artificial and they should be challenged. What does that mean, you know, real people versus unreal people? But we see this kind of discourse everywhere. Remember, one of Trump's speeches um, precisely summarized this. He said... the the important thing for us is to unite the people. But the next line in in that particular speech was, so it goes like this, the important thing for us is to unite the people. As for the other people, they don't really matter. And that is the irony, you know, who are the other people? Well, the other people are immigrants, the other people are minorities. Sometimes it's LGBT, sometimes it's racial minorities, ethnic minorities, sometimes it's intellectuals, leftists, liberals, there's no end to it. You know, anyone can be labeled as the other people, you know? So we need to oppose this kind of polarization. We need to be aware of the dangers of this kind of duality and dualistic way of thinking and transcend tribes, transcend echo chambers. I think this is going to be one of our biggest challenges because it's easy to stay in an echo chamber where everyone thinks like us it feels more safe, solid, but we need to go beyond our own echo chambers and and I think this is incredibly important for a proper democracy to survive. Wonderful. Elif, thank you so much. Thank you so much.
5: Okay guys, thank you so much for joining us. Um maybe I should just get you to introduce yourselves.
8: My name is Oshanti Ahmed. I'm Jess Raman godfaleth my pronouns are
6: they them. My name is Zara. I'm Maxine Sibihana.
5: So tell us a little bit about what you're reading.
6: Um, Right now I'm rereading African Psycho by Alan Mabanku. And it's basically like a sort of like a satire of American Psycho, but with a Senegalese man who's planning on killing his wife. And it's more of a commentary about like how corruption happens in Africa, but it's also just really dark humor and I very much enjoy it.
9: I'm reading I Can't Wait for the Wending by Wayne Holloway Smith. I think I'm rereading it because I can't get over how different. He's almost broken the genre of poetry and what you think
5: can be poetry and how you can write it. So I'm really enjoying it. Can tell you're all serious readers because we've got two rereadings in the group already. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was also going to say
8: Wayne Holloway Smith, so <laughs> yes, uh, big fan. <laughs> yeah, because I've been reading Alarum. Yeah, um, which I just think he's such a special poet. He has such a unique lens into the world. Um, yeah, I'm also rereading uh, Denise Smith's Insert Boy, mm. which is about sort of uh, race and queerness and sort of yeah how those are sort of connected.
10: Um, I keep revisiting what? Sam Sax's madness uh, yeah. all, all of us in the collective love <laughs> him and Sam his Sachs. collection uh, I think just how he writes and the body and yeah it's really visceral it's, it's like a mirror inside but in a really grotesque kind of way um, and Tafia Faizullah uh, scene uh, yeah I just find her really cool and her stuff from <laughs> Bangladesh really cool
5: so tell us a little bit about the Roundhouse Poetry Collective for any listeners who who aren't familiar with what you guys do.
6: So the Roundhouse Poetry Collective, you basically apply in the summer and it's a academic year cohort. So you start in September and you finish around July, and you meet weekly to like collaborate and work together under like the tutelage of two lead tutors we have this year so it's um Cecilia Knapp and Bridget Minamore um people who've come up through the roundhouse and yeah we have opportunities to perform to write more we have um like residentials and things like that and we just spend a lot of time together writing and and I guess inspiring each other and making each other better writers I feel so
8: I mean you summed up really,
4: uh, now we've got the big question
8: <laughs>
5: what would you say is the biggest issue facing our society today
10: everything <laughs> absolutely everything uh i don't know capitalism i guess i mean, like, that's the root thing but it manifests in many different ways neoliberalism everything um I don't know at the moment capitalis- capitalism seems to co-opt absolutely everything any form of resistance, any form of art writing, um and how even like when like racialized capitalism um everything from the ecology it's just really that big disgusting octopus on the world
5: you're all based in London as well, where I suppose it's quite visible many of the oh, things 100%. you're talking about london's like london's the
10: most it's like a city that you love but absolutely hates you at the yeah, same time. Yeah. Um Taylor Two Cities, complete like poverty but also like complete riches. Like I live like a stone forever away from the shard but like it's com- not reflected in my life at all. Um yeah, London's a it's a a very, very, very bitter, sweet place yeah. to live. <laughs> yeah
8: it's sort of like a black hole it yeah. Yeah, kind of like sucks you in and you can never leave <laughs> yeah.
10: uh. but the thing is it literally uses your carcass to survive as like this edgy cool place mm. that has, has come up through the labour of black and brown folk and working class folk throughout like it, mm. historically yeah. forever and it will never stop yeah. but it'll, it's always like that like even these new places that are gentrified depend on like artists creating this new environment but then those people are displaced and then it's just like a shell. London's basically a shell of the people that used to live there, and for people to come and just start <laughs> a new poem from no. <laughs> <laughs> Um
8: I
6: think also like when we say like the biggest problem, I think that that in itself shows the problem because it's very multifaceted in the way that you answer that. And, like, someone could just say, like, populism or, like, capitalism or whatever, and then, like, they don't recognise the different, like, layers that go into mm. the different problems that people, especially of marginalised backgrounds, have to face every single day. And especially in a place like London, when you're an immigrant and you're working out and all that kind of different stuff that, like, compounds your identity, it is very difficult to just pinpoint one thing that is a problem, But there are multiple things that go into it. Yeah, I'd definitely say capitalism, um, xenophobia, um, racism, Islamophobia, the whole. Yeah, but like that's the thing is that a lot of people live within all of those different facets. And so it's hard to just pinpoint one thing that could necessarily be the biggest problem. I think you have to take on everything um, separately, but then also realize that it speaks back to a larger issue. Um, so
9: I moved here about two years ago, and I grew up oh, in India and in the Middle East. And I feel like the moment you move to any country, you start to see this common thread of hate in a way where one people think they're superior than the others, and the minute that happens, you know it's it's so ingrained. It can even be in the people around you, or even in your family when they're pitting themselves against a certain group of people, be it whatever be you know race religion on or in any account and that's yeah i think that's one of the biggest
5: <laughs> issues the minute you start thinking about it than someone else so and capitalism affirm our common humanity <laughs> taken from there is that the yeah. <laughs> yeah.
10: yeah it's just i think uh, i agree with um, what maxine said like it's quite i think it's ins- like it's a very insidious mm-hmm. thing like everything is quite Underground, and I think yeah, I guess deconstructing the question more, like it, you've got to be from, I guess a certain place or privilege to be like, what's the biggest issue, yeah. and like who you're asking that to, and who you are, like being asked, like just the conversation itself. I guess even this conversation is like, it's yeah, it's a it's a really like it's a question that kind of restricts the conversation. Yeah. I guess before you could start it, but yeah,
9: it's intersectional, really. Like there's mm-hmm. no hierarchy to you know pain or people's struggles and when people start complaining there's this other conversation going but what about this but what about
8: this and it's yeah. really
9: everything at the
8: same time yeah yeah i just i don't think there is a, the biggest problem i yeah. think there are loads of problems and i think that they all sort of they you can't have one problem without the other in many cases yeah. like empowers each problem like each problem (laughs) literally it's a big clog (laughs) so like for example i could say like as a trans or non-binary person one of the biggest problems for me is that like every day i'm sort of erased and people say i don't exist but then you can't have that without having a discussion about race and colonialism which is sort of like created these ideas of gender so like those problems they coexist and i think maybe the the problem is that people see these things as normal maybe not normal but natural and don't look at the sort of like historical um lineage of these things and actually what we have to do is sort of like recognize that these are are artifices is that the word and then like unlearn it that way so yeah i don't i don't think there is the biggest problem i think all problems are connected in some way like you said with capitalism like
5: yeah wonderful guys thank you so much for joining us
11: So what are your names? My name's Anna Wild.
12: My name is Ollie Isaac Smith and my pronouns are they, them.
11: So what are you guys reading at the moment? I don't read, but I watch a lot of TV. I'm obsessed with She's Gotta Have It. Oh, it's by Spike Lee. It's his new series. It's just amazing. It's really artistic and there's lots of good music and it's about relationships and how you feel. I love it.
12: I am finishing up Normal People right now, obviously, by Sally Rooney. And I am also rereading Sam Sax's I like
5: that you say obviously. Like, oh, oh, we've all read the Sally <laughs>
12: yeah. Rooney. It's been around, and I, was, and I just thought it's being done by GBC 3 so it'll be on TV soon.
11: Ah, well. Oh, well then I'll watch it. <laughs> I'm not very good at reading, so...
5: I have to ask about this as... I think our listeners will go, OK, but you're a poet and you don't read. So talk about how you came into poetry.
11: So my granddad always read me poetry. So I'm dyslexic, so I found reading really, really difficult and I really hated it. So he read to me and I couldn't concentrate for a long time, so he would read me poetry and he loves poetry. So that's how I kind of got into it and it's how I expressed myself. Yeah, my thoughts and my, the way I read was all higgledy-piggledy. So poetry was perfect for that, because it's all higgledy pickledy, And it's, how, it's you expressing what's in your mind, not in a structured form. Or it can be in a structured form, but it can make no sense as well.
5: I'm dyslexic as well.
11: Are you? Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it can be really inaccessible for you to do things that's to do with writing when you're dyslexic. But Well, I was always a really big reader, but I can't...
5: I lose words when I'm trying to talk out loud, so I'm probably the exact exact opposite of mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the Roundhouse Poetry
12: Collective. I got into it mostly because I was like, I have this speech impediment and I want to learn how to like do spoken word more confidently, really, because I've been doing poetry on page a lot and I want to have experiences of trying to do it. Out loud we've been doing we went on a retreat um, to Hawkwood College. We're here at Hay Festival, we're going to Rainchild as well and uh, yeah it's just we meet every Sunday either read each of his work and critique it but really we're just like a really tight group of friends now which is really nice like I've been on a lot of other schemes but like this is like really different in a way in terms of how close we've gotten and how much time we've spent and how much time the roundhouse has like put into us as well
11: Mm. yeah it's really nice I I came because I was on another uh, course at the roundhouse and then They recommended me to do this one, so I got onto it. I didn't really know what it was, to be honest with you. And then I did it, I thought, well, I might as well do it. And, uh, yeah, it's been great, because I've been really... uh, I've been very scared of my poetry, in a way, because it's been like, if it would get judged or people don't understand it, and a lot of my stuff's been really dark, but it's been really nice to just kind of learn that it doesn't even matter if it's dark. Or it's funny, and I've been much more com- And the more confident I've become, the kind of funnier I've got. Because I'm funny in real life, but on paper, I'm really not funny. I'm like very depressing.
5: That's interesting as well, isn't it? Because I think when people think about poetry, like you say, there's this preconceived idea of what poetry should be, mm. specific forms, it's quite a formal register. And it sounds like part of what you guys are doing is trying to break that up or find different ways in or connect with other poets doing different
11: yeah, 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 and yeah. we one of our one of the people on the poetry collective put on a um, queer festival, and we were all. I didn't do poetry there. I did drag, which was great. So I dressed up as a man and then took all my clothes off. Uh, but everybody else at the poetry collective did um, poetry. Yeah. But it's amazing because we're part of this really. It feels really new and exciting and like you know feels like we're dom- like there's a kind of like we're doing this together like dominating this yeah. thing together doesn't feel it feels less submissive I felt very submissive before like turning up to events maybe doing an open mic and now it's like yeah we're the Roundhouse Poetry Collective yeah we're yeah. like a force to be reckoned with
5: I wish I could capture your body language
12: <laughs> <laughs> it's very forceful you know, yeah. yeah it's been really nice because I, I always thought if I got into poetry it'd be like very like competitive and like mm everyone would be very catty and stuff but it's been this like everyone has a very different style in the roundhouse group but i would never like try to like imitate each other's pieces but it's always like we always help each other and that's been like really unexpected for me but mm. in a really nice way like how much we've supported each other like at different festivals different events inviting people to different things and all that kind of thing yeah. going forward
11: And, like, being really honest with one another, like, Mm. saying, I don't get it. When you do it, no-one's like, like, I just don't get it. And that is great. And they're like, no, cut that. And it's great, because sometimes we disagree, or often quite we disagree. And um, it's really nice, because we can talk about that, why the poem means different things to me. Like, I really get Ollie's poetry... And sometimes it's not, and I just feel really like, no, I get it so much. And then, <laughs> and it's like really nice actually for to feel that, if you get what I mean. And some of the other people's poetry, I'm like, I just don't get it. But and that's, that's allowed. That's that, thing, exactly, yeah. exactly.
5: Well, I hate to take you off a moment of optimism into a moment of pessimism. Mm. And your colleagues have taken apart this question in the best possible way. Um, but we're asking everyone, what would you say is kind of the biggest issue facing? our society
11: right now? Blame. That would be my... I think that's the biggest problem we have now. We're blaming one another. We're blaming the wrong people for the the wrong things. And everybody's blaming one another. And we need to come together in unity, you know. And yeah, I think that's the biggest problem. People are blaming the European Union, and they're blaming, you know, they're being racist, which is about blame. There's all a lot of blame. And, you know, we need to start understanding one another. And, uh, I mean, I'm a culprit of myself. I'm a big blamer. I blame people. But, I don't know, it's very scary because blame makes us go backwards. Uh, And I am going to America next week and I'm scared because I'm going to Texas, and everybody is very blamey. They want to blame all the Mexicans, and they want to blame this, that, and the other. And really, we should be looking at the fact that it's just the rich. They're the problem. I don't blame them. I just know it's a fact. <laughs> yes, that's a fact. Yeah.
12: yeah, no, so. yeah I, also, I think there's such a, a focus on like what the problems are without, and not enough on what solutions are. There can be, Mm. um, in terms of how much focus there is on and how separate a lot of the problems feel, but how, in the end, they're all really connected. Yeah, absolutely. From, like, you know, there's Brexit and there's knife crime and there's climate change. The only thing that, when you get down to it, are really interconnected within the global system we we live in. Mm. And, um, So yeah, I think a lot of it is is like understanding in a bigger context.
11: Yeah. And also I think one of the biggest problems that we have is that people try to understand things they don't understand. So they have an opinion on things that they have no concept of. Like people have an opinion of like well if they say, Well, if I was homeless I wouldn't do that. Well, you don't know because you've never been homeless. If I, why are they coming? Why are people coming all the way here? If I was, if I was a refugee, I would stop in the first country. How do you know that? You don't know. So why don't we try and, and tap into some empathy and tap into things that try to learn that I don't know the answer to that. Why don't I learn? And that's been a big moment for me. I've, I've, that's I've had to do that. You know, I've had to do a lot of just like I don't understand because I also am very, you know, I don't really... Right-wing people I find very difficult to... But I have to learn why they feel like that and learn that way, and that's allowed me to understand why people think like that. And so m- instead of blaming them, it's about showing the opportunity for there to be unity rather than divide. I
5: suppose what you were saying as well about how you work as a group, the idea that you can go, that's unfamiliar to me, mm. what you're doing, that's different, and sit with difference in a, yeah. in a way that's not necessarily destructive.
11: Yeah exactly sit with difference in learning and gratitude, like I'm so grateful that I'm not a refugee, I'm so grateful that you know I'm not, home. I was homeless, I was a street homeless when I was a teenager and I'm not anymore and I'm so grateful but like you know I'm so grateful for my life and I think if we all start living from a place of gratitude there'll be growth I guess.
12: Yeah, yeah I think it's like you have to meet people where they are. Mm. Um and again that is kind of in turn of the poetry collective. Um and just not having this strange like standard that you mm. hold people to. And just meeting people where they are.
5: Yeah. There you go, you've taken my pessimistic question and turned it into an optimistic one. Oh Thank good. you very much guys. Was that good? That, that was that good. Th-
3: And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our special Hey Festival podcast. Rebecca Lou was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you again next week. Goodbye.